Welcome to Veterinary Advice, Animal News, and Views, the show dedicated to pets and the people who love them. Brought to you by DrRogerHolisticVet.com, the place for safe and effective natural healing for dogs and cats. Now, here's your host, practicing veterinarian, Dr. Roger Welton. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Veterinary Advice, Animal News and Views. I'm your host, practicing veterinarian, Roger Welton, coming to you not live from the Florida Space Coast, but this evening, I do have a bit more of a valid excuse than just being incredibly busy for not coming to you live as we normally do. As this episode is airing for the first time, I will be celebrating my 40th birthday. So today, as you're listening to this, July 17, 2014, I turn 40. So happy birthday to me. And I do thank you for continuing to be patient as we work through this incredibly busy summer season. We will be coming back to you live as soon as we are able. But we have an excellent topic tonight. We do have one email question. Recall that uh, even though we love to take live calls when we are in the live format, which, again, we hope to get back to in the earliest possible time frame, we are still happy to take your email questions, comments, concerns, anything related to what we discuss on the program. You can email those to comments at web-dvm.net, comments at web-dvm.net, and we will address those, or I will address those personally at the beginning of each episode. So we have one of those this evening. Before we get to that, just want to remind you of tonight's topic, are pets telepathic? So this may come off as hokey to some of you, but um, there is credible, not just anecdotal evidence that you hear from pet owners, experiences I've had of my own as a, a pet owner but uh, also credible research, uh, especially by a gentleman, biologist and researcher by the name of Rupert Sheldrake. Pretty amazing stuff I would really like to share with you tonight and get your feedback on because this is something that is just not just only incredibly interesting, but it's something that a, a lot of people have experienced but kind of wrote it off or you know just didn't want to share with people because people might think they're absolutely crazy, especially others that may not be pet enthusiasts like the rest of us are. But we're going to jump right into that topic right after our email question here. This is from Emily of Palm Springs, California, and this is what she had to write. Hi, Dr. Welton! Exclamation point. I am a huge fan of your podcasts and listen whenever I find the time. I was pre-vet in college but choose teaching as my profession because it works better with my family. I'm always interested in what you have to say and the new information you Always share about veterinary medicine fascinates me. You might have addressed this in a future podcast, parentheses, I'm a few behind, winky face, but you never mentioned the dosing you would recommend for preventative care using turmeric. I have two lab pointer mixes that are about 60 pounds. Also, I currently give them fish oil as a supplement. Would that be all right to continue with the adding of turmeric. Thanks again for all of your great podcasts. Please keep them coming. Have a great day. Sincerely, Emily. Again, from Palm Springs, California area. Thank you, Emily, for the kind words, especially, but also for participating in the podcast and being a regular fan. That's so flattering to me. It's just incredible. Uh, so, good question. Maybe I didn't mention the dose. I probably should have. 
I believe it might be in the blog at web-dvm.net where I embed these this podcast. But whatever the case, I'm happy to tell you. The, you, you want to start turmeric off because it is technically, I guess, a, a spice, meaning that it's a bit tangy. They you, generally like the taste of it, but you want to start off a little bit small just to let their GI adjust to it. Generally, I will recommend about an eighth of a teaspoon per 10 pounds of body weight. So just you know, measure out an eighth of a teaspoon and put six of those into the food and kind of spread it around. And then give that about a week or two. And then what you want to do is increase that to about a quarter teaspoon per 10 pounds of body weight um, in, in the food once daily. So and that's, that's your kind of general dosing. And absolutely, it can go with the fish oils. So the fish oils, I do want to remind you that you do get what you pay for in terms of quality. Poor quality fish oils can actually do more harm than good. So make sure you're using a high-quality fish oil product that is processed properly, that's not allowed to oxidize, and is rich, therefore, in omega-3 fatty acids versus converting to omega-6 and omega-9. As we know, omega-3 fatty acids are powerfully anti-inflammatory, excellent for the body, for all the systems of the body virtually, whether it's the cardiovascular system, the joints, the GI, the brain, you name it, omega-3 is wonderful. I take it for myself. I give it to my kids. I call it their brain vitamins. They take them. And, of course, my, my pets as well. You can use it synergistically with turmeric. Um, so, so there's no reason to stop the fish oils. In fact, they complement one another. They act in different ways. Um, and you know, I would encourage anybody who hasn't listened to my turmeric podcast, please check it out. It's incredibly regenerative. It's incredibly anti-inflammatory, immune-boosting. It's wonderful stuff. Thank you for writing in, Emily. So let's jump into our topic tonight. So our pets telepathic. So, you know, a lot of us have, have observed when we're feeling particularly down, we're grieving perhaps, we've had a bad day at work, something is stressing us, multiple things are stressing us, you know, that's the ebbs and flows of life. We have better moments, we have more stressed moments, we have outright devastating moments, we have elating moments. And our pets seem to know it. Uh, when, you know, you come home and you're ultimately very stressed, you have anxiety, uh, something's really gnawing at you and you're not necessarily acting it out in any way, but you come home and rather than attack you with joy at the door like your pets will sometimes do, they'll just kind of bum rush you and it's a wonderful thing. They'll kind of approach you a little bit more, a little bit more slowly, a little bit more methodical and still just pile the affection on you, but it's a more patient inf- uh, affection versus, you know, that, oh my God, you're home, I missed you so much kind of deal. Um, they'll just approach you differently. They they can they can sense how you're feeling. Other times you come home and you're angry. You're you, or you've just gotten off the phone and you're angry. You just talk to you know your credit card company or or a, a bank or you know some other awful person that uh, has left you less than happy. Or you know you're not necessarily a person that's going to act out or yell or scream or hit things or curse. Yet your pet somehow senses, even though the anger is not directed towards them, even though you're not yelling necessarily, you're not throwing things, you're not throwing a fit, tantrum, whatever, they know, you know what, I better just keep my distance, let them calm down. And they really just will keep their distance until you're in a much more calm and collected state of mind. So, you know, science has picked up on this a long time ago. It's nothing new. It is a phenomenon that, that we see that we get reported by pet owners Time and again, 
I experience this constantly with my own pets, down to one dog and three cats at this point. But they all sort of act in this manner. They will adjust their behavior and their demeanor towards you based on how you're feeling. And uh, especially true with dogs and cats. I mean, they can be incredibly insightful. So science really has recognized this for the most part, but kind of wrote it off to, okay, well, what happens when we have our emotions fluctuate? When stress hormones are up, our biochemistry changes. When we have anxiety, our biochemistry changes. When we are feeling love, contentment, when we are elated, when we're happy, up, high, we our biochemistry is, is in a certain way, and our biochemistry is constantly changing based on how we feel, what neurotransmitters are pulsing through our bodies, what stress hormones we may or may not be putting out there. As a result, uh, perhaps our pets that can smell far more acutely that, than we can can pick up the scent of our emotions, and that's been long theorized. Also, they have an intercommunication among their own species that is based on body language and scent, of course, but, but by and large body language, and body language goes a long way in the, me- in the, the method by which Dogs and even cats will communicate with one another. You, you look at dogs, for example, interacting on a playground that have never met each other. They're doing certain things. They're taking certain postures. A lot of it's beyond anything that we're picking up on, but all those postures mean a lot to one another. And as a result, the, the researchers sort of feel that instinctually the animals have <clears throat> this innate ability to read our body language as well. So scent and body language is what they wrote it off to. Well, a gentleman by the name of Rupert Meldrake, uh, he's a biologist, a renowned biologist. He's also a profound researcher. And Rupert Meldrake decided to conduct a series of experiments, ongoing, I mean, tons and tons of experiments with regard to not just this particular topic. He, he researches all kinds of scientific phenomena. But this is a big one that he's known for, which is animal telepathy or pet telepathy. And he began with experiments with dog anticipation of the owner's return. So, of course, there's some dogs that will sit by the window the entire time. Their owner's gone, waiting for them to come back, and they're going to be at that window no matter what. And there's other dogs that will noticeably have the anticipation knowing the owner is coming home and will go to the window in anticipation to greet the owner. And... This was reported anecdotally where, you know, somebody would be home with the dog, for example, and, you know, consistently within minute, you know, five to ten minutes of, of the dog's primary leader in the household, you know, whoever they see as, who they're particularly attached to, they would be up at the window waiting and, and people would, you know, other, other members of the household will know, you know, Fido just seems to know when you're on your way home. And even with people who didn't have a regular work schedule, they would... They would be coming home at random times. The dog would just seem to know, not hearing the car yet because they're still, you know, five to ten minutes away, just kind of popping up and knowing that, you know, my beloved is home. My beloved owner, the one that they look to for the leadership, the one they're particularly attached to, is on their way home. And and so Meldrake picked up on this and decided to study it. So what he did was he chose people that had random schedules. So they, they didn't have a particular pattern by which they left the home and came home. You know, so like for me, it's generally I'm leaving the home by eight, and generally I'm coming home between five thirty and six, and that's my that's my work week. 
you know, dogs can be on sort of a circadian rhythm and, and sort of be on a time clock to to sort of know by their own body rhythms when you're going to come home, knowing what time of day it is and, and that sort of thing. They can they can instinctually know that. So what he was looking for was patternless uh, types of leaving the home, random. And what he did was videotaped the these dogs. And in one particular case, there was a dog named J-T, J-A-Y-T-E-E. And this owner had a particularly random schedule, and they videotaped the dog, and the dog consistently, when the owner was, they, they only would conduct the experiment when the owner was seven kilometers or further away. Rupert Mandrake, by the way, is, is British, so they don't do miles. Um, it was kilometers, seven kilometers or further away, and they would uh, videotape the dog and you know note the time when the owner was coming home, and consistently, this dog would go to the window within four minutes of the owner's arrival, knowing that she was about to arrive. They repeated this experiment 100 uh, times. They videotaped 100 subjects and got the same results uh, or similar results. So statistically, because you know Rupert Meldrake is, is he's a scientist first and foremost. He, you know, of course, you're going to look at the statistical probability of this occurring randomly versus the percentage of the time that they were seeing this occur and the percentage of the time they saw the dog's anticipation in comparison to the random possibility that they just may, may be randomly looking out the window within that period of time that the owner's coming home, it was statistically astronomically not feasible. So it, it looked very convincingly like it was not a random behavior. You know, this was something that was consistently happening. Somehow these dogs knew. And really, how how do you explain that? Certainly, they're not going to be able to smell the owner who's in a car, uh, you know, several kilometers away. Of course, they say kilometers. It still sounds so strange to me, being an American and all. But uh, you have this phenomenon occurring time and again. And uh, to me, you know, and Meldrick has so so many experiments and so many studies that to just name a couple is not doing any justice. I would I would definitely encourage you to to Google Rupert Meldrake. It's spelled M-E-L-D-R-A-K-E. Rupert Meldrake. Um, but this, this other one that to me was the most intriguing of all of them. There's a lady named Amy Mangara. I hope I'm or I'm sorry, Mangano. Amy Mangano and and. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, but whatever the case, she had a bird named Nikishi, and she was pretty convinced that her bird was telepathic because she, her living room was was in a separate room from where her bird was was kept, and she consistently would be reading magazines or looking at photographs or watching TV, not saying any words, and the bird would say the word of the image that she was looking at. So, for example, she's looking at a picture of a flower. The bird would say flower. And this happened over and over again. And, and lots of times these words were outside of the bird's known vocabulary, you know, as far as she knew. So she was aware of Rupert Meldrake's work and she reached out to him and they collaborated on doing a, a double blind experiment. So here's what I mean by double blind. What they, what they did was the researchers led by Meldrake put images, photographic images in a sealed envelope, and they, they were thick enough they could, you could not see through them. The nature of the photograph was previously unknown to the 
to the owner of the bird, Amy, and it was also unknown to Nikishi the bird. So it was a double-blind study. Neither had been aware of the images. And what they did was they, they stayed in the same setting, and the owner was to open the envelope randomly and look at the image. And as she looked at the image, the bird's response in the other room, 50 feet away, separated by a solid wall, you know, there's no no communication whatsoever, the bird would say whatever it wanted to say. So and there was nothing but a camera in the room, so there was no, no visual cues, nothing going on but, but the camera. Well, in 71 times that this was done, so there were 71 envelopes open, 23 times the bird scored a hit. So by, the, by definition of hit, what, what we were talking about was Nikishi would say a key word associated with the image. So something that was seen on the image, anything that was on there, uh, it didn't have to be the primary subject of the image. It could be perhaps that the owner was looking at one particular thing versus another. So for example, you're looking at mountains and there's clouds above the mountains uh, in the sky and, and Nikishi would say clouds or mountains or anything particular that's significant about the photograph. And, and, and they were very tight in the parameters. They, made, they chose images that were very specific, not a lot of, not a lot of clutter, things that were you know, pretty basic. A great example is just a picture of a flower. Um, you know, and, and so more, more simplistic type stuff like that. But every now and then, Nikishi would pick out something else that was in the picture that wasn't necessarily the primary uh, subject of the picture, but it may, it may have been something the, the owner was paying maybe perhaps a little bit more attention to at the time that the bird sensed to say it. Well, of course, the skeptic is going to say, well, 23 out of 71 times, you know, perhaps the bird was just, saying things randomly and it just happened to match up. Well, statistically, again, when you when you look at the statistical probability of the bird saying something random that just happens to match something in the image, astronomically unfeasible, uh, you, there, there's just statistically you're not going to see that be mathematically possible. The, 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 it's so, so infinitesimally small that uh, to write it off as a random event to get 20, 23 hits out of 71 tries, it's just it's nothing short of remarkable. And plus, you have the anecdotal evidence from Amy Mangano that she would say time and again she would be looking at something and she'd hear her bird in the other room say the word of what she was looking at. And and again, outside the dog, or I'm sorry, the dogs, the bird's known vocabulary. So just just absolutely amazing stuff, and again, I, I would I would encourage you to to read some more of his work because the the scientific method behind it is so concise. You know, the scientific method meaning you're trying to take all subjectivity out of the experiment and just keep objective evidence. And um, you know, I think he does a very good job of that, and really has presented us with some very credible work that that suggests that on some level our animals are beyond just emotionally in in tune with us. They're 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 in tune with us on some higher level. Um and, and depending on how you want to look at it from a metaphysical point of view, spiritual, uh higher level of consciousness, whatever you want to call it, there is there there does seem to be a higher connection. So I'm gonna close here with my own experience. My adolescent dog, so was, you know I had my uh 
childhood, very young childhood dog, which was a Cocker Spaniel, Waldo. But as I was just a little bit older, I got Stanley. Stanley was a delightful little Cocker Spaniel, English Cocker. I just adored Stanley, and although he was a family dog, everyone pretty much accepted the fact that Stanley was my dog. He followed me everywhere. He slept in bed with me. He was my shadow. He went everywhere with me. This dog really was my best friend in every sense of the two words. He was my best friend, and he really, you know, he would gravitate towards my mom when I wasn't around, but pretty much I was it for this dog. Well, my grandmother, uh, in my late teens, became terminally ill with lung cancer, and she moved up from Tampa and moved into a bedroom in the house to spend the remainder of her life with her family, and you know, hospice was brought in, and, and uh, she, we, she was kept comfortable am, among people she loved, and brought in a hospital bed and everything like that, and her hospice nurse came in every day. From the moment Grandma arrived, Stanley suddenly ceased being my dog. Of course, he 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 was always affectionate, and, and he was, you know, of course, a loving, sweet dog, but, but he did not leave from Grandma's room. He was at the foot of her hospital bed, and my grandmother, even when she wasn't really looking or wasn't really seemingly conscious of the fact that that, that uh, Stanley was laying there. She just always knew he was there, and, and, and she would always say uh, things like, oh, bless his heart. And, and she just was always aware that, that Stanley was there, and he didn't move. You know, he only came out to eat and to potty, and you know, potty outside, and then he went right back in her room. Never once did he go upstairs to my bedroom to come sleep with me, as he did all the years before. And I was I was just fine with that. In fact, I was very moved by it. Um, you know, the prospect of knowing I was going to lose my grandmother was very sad for me. But knowing that, on some level, Stanley knew that she needed him more than I did for that period of time, it just it just amazed me and touched my heart to to a point that I, I can't even describe. So, you know, eventually Grandma passed several months later, and. Stanley then went back to being the normal Stanley that followed me around with my shadow and was, you know, back every night coming up the stairs to come jump in bed with me. And I just find it truly amazing that Stanley just completely changed his routine. He changed what he did. Did he love Grandma any more than he loved me? Of course not. He knew her far less than he loved me, but he knew that 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 lady at that point in her life really needed his presence in his room. And it's just I just look back at that and I'm just just truly amazed. And so when I when I I have that personal experience, and of course I have the experience of coming home and 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 my my pets know to take a certain posture with me. They can be extra compassionate, reassuring, whatever it is. They just know. And hearing just time and again stories from clients of my veterinary hospital that are very credible people, people that are not you know hokey or 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 prone to just letting their imagination run with them. I'm talking about, you know, doctors, lawyers, surgeons, rocket scientists. We have a lot of rocket scientists around here because NASA's right by. We're near Cape Canaveral. You know, rocket scientists, very objectively minded, highly intelligent people, very professional, telling me things that for years that are just kind of unexplainable, that the our pets are with us on a much higher level than, than just emotion. And I certainly feel that way. You know, as a an undergraduate biochemistry major and a doctor of veterinary medicine, when it comes to matters of spirit, metaphysics, what have you, things that are far less tangible than the things that we can compute or see, feel, measure, quantify, when it comes to that sort of thing, I'm innately a skeptic. I'm going to 
not necessarily take things at face value because I'm a scientist. I need evidence, and that's how I feel. And it's hard to, it's hard for me to change my brain. But in this case, I think not just the personal experience and, and subjective credibility that's behind this notion that our pets have some measure of telepathy with us. There's a scientific proof as well, and I think Mr. Rupert Man- Meldrake has uh, done a very good job of, of bringing that to light. So uh, that's my show for this evening, ladies and gentlemen. I really thank you for joining me. And as I, as I said, as you listen to this uh, broadcast, if you're listening to the, the first play of it, I am turning 40 and I'll be having some fun somewhere. So uh, thank you very much for the last uh, several years of your listenership and fanship. I started this podcast in around 2009, and uh, five years later, we're still here, and we're still here in large part because all of you care about taking the time to listen, caring about what I have to say, and I'm just so fully moved by it. I don't know how many years I have left, but I hope I have many, many years left. Maybe 40 is not ancient, but certainly it's not young anymore, but I, for the foreseeable future, I so enjoy doing this. I so enjoy speaking to you that I, I plan to be around for uh, a long time, and I want to continue to do this for as long as uh, I'm able to. So uh, whether that's 75 years old, 80 years old, I don't know. We don't know how long we're going to live, but uh, I feel really good about the fact that I just so enjoy the, my media work, and it's such a big part of my profession. And with my birthday coming up, I just get a little sentimental about it, but you know that I have a passion for the media. I have a passion for the writing coming to you by podcast, and there, there is a, a base of you that, that really loyally uh, listens to me time and again, and, and I'm so grateful. So thank you so much. Everyone have a lovely evening, and I will be back to you next week. Trying to grab all the groceries in one trip? Oof, not how you would have done that. You know sometimes less is more. Like when you drive less and save with the USAA annual mileage discount. USAA. Get a quote today. With Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.